Tumlema is a, a sweet girl. Her family got news in early June that their village was next to be destroyed, completely flattened by fire. And so her parents told her and her uh, younger brother, you all need to leave. Across the world today, millions of Christians are persecuted. They face oppression, imprisonment, displacement, and even death simply because of their faith in Jesus Christ. These courageous believers are our brothers and sisters. We're in this together with them and we need to hear their voice. Join host Laura as we discover their stories today on Release International's Voice podcast. India is the world's largest democracy, a country whose constitution grants its citizens the freedom not only to profess and practice, but even to propagate religion. And yet it is a country where the persecution of Christians continues. In this edition of Release International's Voice podcast, we hear about recent violent attacks on Christian communities, particularly in the Northeast, Hello, I'm Laura Hayes, your host for this edition of Release International's Voice podcast. I'm delighted to welcome my friend Leah from our partners, the All India Christian Council. Leah is currently based in the United States. In the past year, we've seen a rise in oppression and violence against Christians in India. But why is this happening? Leah, thank you for taking time out to talk to us. Can you begin by telling us a bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Well, thank you, Laura. I'm just so glad to be here. Uh, you know, I'm just a normal American wife and mother uh, who loves the people of the world. And uh, I'm uh, also a marketing and fundraising professional. And I work with companies and other organizations around the world to really help them expand their reach, expand their global view, um, and break down structural injustice for the poor and marginalized um, and really just make the world a better place. Sounds grand, I know, but <laughs> that's what, what I love to do. I mean, I've been associated with the All India Christian Council for almost 30 years now, since its inception back in 1999. Uh, and I've played a, a variety of volunteer roles just because I love the people of India so much. I love the nation of India so much. And, uh, you know, mainly right now, my role is just to make people in the West aware of... Um, really the plight of the poor, the suffering, the persecuted, um, and then do something meaningful with that new awareness. I think a lot of people specifically regarding India don't don't know that there are people who are being persecuted uh, from, from a lot of different uh, religious backgrounds. And so uh, I'm very happy to be able to share some awareness so that they can pray effectively, get involved in, in however they might do that. Um, you know, after our first visit to India as a newlywed couple, uh, my husband and I decided that uh, India was the place that we wanted to live for a while. And so we had no commitments in America. So we thought, let's just move there. And my husband uh, was able to start a, a really thriving business that, that went on for a couple of decades. And we were very sad on the day that we decided that it was going to be best for us to relocate back to the U.S. after living there for quite a long time. Our kids had been born in India and our kids had had been growing up. And so now it was time for them to look for some different uh, educational opportunities. But, you know, I love India and, um, you know, I just want to continue investing in their people. And so I continue to do what I can to help. Thanks for that, Leah. 
It's great to hear how God has been at work in your life. Can you also tell us a bit about the All India Christian Council? Yeah, you know, um, about uh, about a month after, after the young Leah and her husband moved to India, some huge persecution broke out against Christians. Um, it was a big shock to everyone because India is known for being a peaceful nation that that loves its people and is uh, becoming an economic strength and and so everyone was quite shocked. And so Christian leaders from around the nation, they all met together and they decided, you know, we need to do something to protect Christians. And so they they developed the All India Christian Council, which is now a, a, an organization of about 2,000 member bodies uh, from all walks of life and, and a lot of different religious backgrounds. And they stand up for the rights of Christians and other religious and ethnic minorities who are facing persecution. Uh, we offer law and legal advice. We offer relief and uh, medical care to people who need it after an incident of persecution. But, you know, we, we really offer a lot of hope to people because we will take the We'll take the stand for people. We'll have a march. We'll have a rally uh, to garner public opinion uh, against any persecution that is going on. And, you know, the hope that it offers to Christians and other religious minorities facing persecution is really quite uh, valuable. And they they are so thankful when a, you know, a village-based pastor or Christian knows that the rest of the body of Christians in India, as well as other folks from religious, different religious backgrounds come, and they're standing up for their civil rights. That gives them a lot of hope. And so the Allergy Christian Council has been uh, very effective, and we've even had the chance to um, testify at the United States Congress, at the in the British Parliament, and really bring the world's notice to what's happening uh, to some of the most marginalized people in India. Thanks, Leah. At Release International, we really value the partnership we have with the All India Christian Council, enabling us to be the voice of persecuted Christians in India here in the UK. So can you tell us a bit more about the persecutions of Christians in India at present? You know, you know, as I said, these the Christians, a lot in the villages, the village Christians are very vulnerable and they are facing physical attack, they're facing emotional, verbal abuse, this kind of thing, and it's it's really tough for them. But, you know, what I've seen of the Christian community in India is that um, they're very courageous, you know, they're very brave, and they don't want to give up meeting together. They don't want to give up their faith because they love Jesus so much, and he has brought so much hope into their lives that they they don't want to give that up. And so they've been courageous. They've remained strong, um, even though some of this persecution is is getting quite worse, actually. And um, you know, they love meeting together. They find hope in in their in their prayer, in their scripture reading. They counsel one another when they are in times of trouble. And it's it's really a beautiful thing to watch the Christians come together as one, as the family of God, actually. Uh, there in India, you know, during COVID, they provided food and medical care for one another, even though everyone was suffering. They, the Christians knew that they could rely on one another in their Christian community. And so it was a, it's a beautiful thing um, just to watch Christians kind of emerge from these troubles with great confidence. And it's really inspiring, actually, to believers everywhere about uh, what the power of God can do when people come together. 
So, Leah, why is it that persecution seems to be rising in India? Yeah, that's a, it's a very complicated issue, that's for sure. You know, um, the All India Christian Council has witnessed people being arrested falsely, pastors arrested under false uh, allegations. We've witnessed Christian women and Christian children being terrorized as they come from their church meetings on their way home. You know, we've witnessed the misinterpretation of laws by uh, by fanatics, religious fanatics, you know, who who have some uh, pretty evil agendas. Um, and in you know, in the worst cases, pastors have been beaten up very, very badly, and and a few have even been killed, and that's that's a very, very sad thing. Um, it's all across North India. It's all across South India. Surprisingly, even though South India is, is uh, relatively full of Christians. And so it's it's a nationwide, it's a pan-India thing that we're seeing. And, you know, this complex issue of why the persecution is happening, it, there are so many reasons. But I thought I would just talk about one that I don't think it's talked about very often, and that's the issue of um, structural injustice. This is something that I've done a lot of study in my in my doctoral program, and I'm, I'm really trying to make the world more aware about what this term structural injustice is. I have a quote here from a, a woman named Iris Marion Young, who has written the definitive uh, book on justice, uh, how it's broken for different people. And she defines structural injustice like this. Structural injustice exists when social processes put large groups of persons under systematic threat of domination or deprivation of the means to develop and exercise their own capacities. At the same time that these processes enable others to dominate or to have a wide range of opportunities for developing and exercising their capacities. So you can see you have a people who is being oppressed so that others can thrive. And this is something we see all around the world in every nation, even our nations, which are very strong and known for freedom and, and, and all of that. And it's very pervasive, very endemic especially, though, among the poor and the oppressed in a variety of nations, including India. Um, it's also one of those things that is almost impossible to combat with standard methodologies. You know, we have, uh, you hear stories about Chinese sweatshops, right? And and you have all the advocates who want to come in and improve the conditions in these Chinese factories. Well, that's actually not solving the problem of structural injustice, which put the people in the factory to begin with. Or we think about hus providing hospitable con conditions to immigrants coming into the United States from, from the Central America and providing the hospitable conditions, not putting them into kind of a, a jail or what, you know, whatever people want to call it. But again, improving those conditions in the detention facility is not solving the problem of why the folks have to find a way to get out of their own countries to begin with. And so those are, you know, examples where the solution to structural injustice is insufficient. And this is what we've got going on in India, where we have folks who have a lot of power and they don't want to lose that power. And so they set up systems that continue to keep the poor and oppressed poor, oppressed marginalized, victimized. And uh, it's going to take a lot of time, a lot of creativity, a lot of strength and courage to change those structures. Um, and right now, I, I don't know that there are any good solutions. 
So, Leah, can I also ask you about the so-called anti-conversion laws in India? We hear about them a lot in the UK. We know that a number of states now have some sort of anti-conversion law in place. What can you tell us about this? Yeah, this is another one of those very complex things, very confusing things, I think, to some people. And uh, even in the implementation of the laws, there is some confusion. And so so the anti-conversion laws are under the purview of every state within India. They can make their own decisions. So it's not a national law. It's it's under the purview of the state. There is some talk of it maybe becoming a national law, but not right now. I think we're battling other things. Uh, so the state themselves can decide whether or not to adopt these laws. You know, at face value, in its purest form, the laws, like all laws in India, are good. But because because India has a strong constitution, um, it's it's the world's largest democracy, and so they know how to make good laws that will benefit their people. The problem with these anti-conversion laws, though, comes when the small portion of religious fanatics in in India they they get hold of the information that's collected during these laws, and they use it in these violent campaigns mainly against Christians, but also against Muslims, Buddhists, Sikhs. And Christians are very fearful whenever an anti-conversion law comes in their in their state because really there's no telling what's going to happen with the information that is collected if they decide they want to change their religion. You know, we're really praying that uh, with the anti-conversion laws that they'll work to maintain a, the secular nature of India, that the religious freedom that is guaranteed in the Indian constitution will continue to remain there and active. And so we're just praying that the religious fanatics will not use those laws to their own benefit. And do you think there is any chance that the government will introduce any kind of national anti-conversion law? You know, they're, the party that is in power right now uh, is is a nationalist government. They they want India to be Hindu. And, you know, that's that, that can be a good thing. We all love our nation, uh, but not at the expense of other people. Uh, and so not at the expense of religious freedom. And so it's a, it's a complex thing. And I think that the states would probably uh, protest against having their own power taken away by the national government. And so we'll see. There, there's all kinds of proposals, but at the same time, they do have to go through a process, and they have to go through that democratic process with voting and and approvals. And so we'll see. Uh, we'll see what happens. We do have an election coming up next year in India. In fact, some of the election cycles have started already in the various states. And so by the end of May 2024, we'll see uh, what kind of government uh, India puts in place. And we're just praying that it would be um, one that is committed to secular values, committed to religious freedoms, committed to all the freedoms that are guaranteed there in the Indian constitution. Thank you, Leah. Let's move on to the recent events in Manipur in the northeast of India. You recently helped us with our Christmas appeal in which we focused on the situation in Manipur. Can you remind our listeners what happened there last year and how the All India Christian Council got involved? Yes, you know, it's really an unprecedented thing what's happening in Manipur now. And back in May, this is when it started. We're here in, we're recording this in at the end of November. And the violence that started in May is still going on every day. 
So back in May, there are two tribes in the state of Manipur who began fighting one another. And it went on for the initial two weeks and the, the country, the world watched as these, as these tribes really did a lot of violence. Uh, one tribe as the aggressor, the other really trying to protect themselves. And in the first two weeks, we saw churches and schools being destroyed, entire villages being just burned down. Anything that was not made of cement got burned. And so we were thankful, you know, we had a couple of churches there that, that were made of cement, so they're still standing. Um, but really, that was the minority of the situation. About 200, 250 churches were burned, some schools, lots and lots of homes. And so you saw a lot of people who were then moved into relief camps, uh, into a stadium kind of situation, into other either church buildings or other school buildings that were still standing. And the challenge was, though, in these relief camps, there was not really a way to bring relief materials in at this early stage. And so it was very challenging for folks. And a lot of women, a lot of children tried to find a way to get out. Well, after the first two weeks, the the state put a uh, communication and internet lockdown. And so it was a complete blackout for 80 days, 80 days, that's quite a long time. And by the time things opened back up in June, you know, a lot of people had assumed, oh, maybe things have calmed down. But in June, when the communication was back on, we found out that things had been worse than we had ever expected. There were more reports of villages being destroyed. There were reports of, of women being uh, stripped naked, paraded through the streets, and then raped in the fields. And it wasn't just a one-off thing. It was woman after woman, a mother and daughter together. It was very, very horrible just to see what had happened. And so we thought at that time, okay, now the world sees what has been going on. Now, surely some action will be taken to help these dear people. And it hasn't. Uh, in fact, now one of the things that we're worried about is that an increase in human trafficking might take place there because of the desperation of people and because of the crooked nature of people who want to take advantage of those who are suffering. And so we're really hoping, praying that some action is taken to help end this fighting. But again, we're just not sure when that's going to happen. There are no good options at this point. So uh, Tumlema is a, a sweet girl, and her family got news in early June that their village was next to be destroyed, completely flattened by fire. And so her parents told her and her uh, younger brother, you all need to leave the state. They, of course, didn't want to leave the state. They wanted to stay with their parents. But really, their parents forced them because they didn't want their kids to suffer any of these horrible things that were happening. And so Tamlima, her brother, and a couple of other teenagers from the area, they fled. And they had to go so quickly that they couldn't pack a bag. They couldn't prepare food. They just went with the clothes on their back. And they started out by hiding in the forest. It was it was a horrible situation. And so they hid in the forest for a night and then decided, okay, we need to figure out how to how to get out of the state. They had no money, they had no transportation. And so they initially started by hitching rides with friendly strangers. And then they were able to talk their way onto a bus. And then they were able to talk their way onto a train. And three to four days later, after a harrowing journey, 
they arrived at the All India Christian Council office uh, in, in central India, in Hyderabad. And our staff there reports that when they got off this train, uh, their clothes were tattered because the journey had been so, so challenging. They were looking ill because they hadn't eaten or had anything to drink in several days. And even the shoes, their simple sandals that they were wearing, uh, were worn through all the way to the ground. And so our staff reported just crying at the desperate state of these of these really children, really children. And so, you know, our folks there in, in AICC in Hyderabad, they immediately got them food and water and some medical care. They got them some new clothes, some new shoes. They found them a safe, loving place to stay uh, so that they could have shelter and a, and a home. And then they even went to the next step of finding them some, some work to do so that they could earn some money. You know, a simple job, being a checker at a supermarket, uh, that kind of thing. Some dignified labor that would also help them to earn some money. And so, you know, today, the reports that I'm getting is that all four of those teenagers are thriving. They're sad. They want to go back to their home. They want to see their parents. But they're thriving. They're healthy. And AICC, All India Christian Council, was so thrilled that they were able to play a part in helping these teenagers as well as several others who came uh, to the AICC headquarters there in Hyderabad. As far as her parents, Tumlema's parents, they're still in the relief camp. We check on them every once in a while. Uh, we try to send them some money from our headquarters there in central India. But one of the things is that these folks are not wealthy people. The ones whose villages have been, have been destroyed are poor, impoverished people. And so they don't have a bank account. They don't have a phone. They don't have the things that are necessary for us to, you know, transfer money to them in the ways that we do. And so we have stories of Tumlema's parents having to contact someone they know in a neighboring city that has a bank account that they can transfer the money to that person, and then they meet up, you know, a day's journey, and and come together to receive that that money, and just so that they can have things to eat. And so it's very, very complicated. A lot harder than just going to the bank machine and putting our card in. That's so encouraging to hear how the All India Christian Council was able to help Tumlima and her brother. Leah, thank you once again for being with us on this edition of Release International's Voice podcast. It's so important to hear about these things as it helps our supporters to pray more specifically for persecuted Christians. So thank you for all you've shared with us. Yeah, thank you, Laura. What a privilege. India is a vast country. Supporting those who suffer for their faith in Christ is a real challenge, as we have heard. If you would like to find out more about how you can help Christians like Tumlima, and not just in India, do visit our website, releaseinternational.org. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of The Voice podcast. Please do subscribe through your favourite podcast app so you can stay connected to the voice of persecuted Christians. We'd love to hear your feedback on the podcast too, so please do share your comments with us. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. 
And if you don't already receive our free quarterly magazine or prayer alert emails, then you can subscribe on our website at releaseinternational.org slash podcast. Remember those who are in prison as if you were in there together with them and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Do not abandon them 